When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome back to So That Happened, the Huffington Post politics podcast about all the terrible things that happened this week. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm filling in once again for Jason Lincolns, who was laid off last week in a corporate merger. And uh, we're very sorry about that. I want to quickly thank the many So That Happened listeners who wrote to us to say how much they loved Jason and how sorry they are to see him go. And we're sorry, too, but this is the kind of thing that happens because, you know, you can't keep shareholders happy if you don't fire a bunch of people every once in a while. So I am joined today to talk politics by Elise Foley. Hello. And SV Date. Hey there. And we want to talk about big news this week. The Republican health care bill has made its way to the Senate, or rather the Senate has uh, invented its own version of the Republican health care bill that they unveiled on Thursday and could vote on as soon as next week. Uh, Sharish. Are they going to vote on – are they actually going to vote on that thing? Could it actually pass? Could it actually make its way to President Donald Trump's desk? Maybe, yes, yes, and yes, right? So <laughs> it's easier to count votes in the Senate because there are fewer of them to count. There right? are 100 senators in there the Senate. There are indeed, and 101 if you get a tie, which is what could actually happen here if if they can – uh, keep their losses on the Republican side to just two, then you would bring in the vice president to cast the tie-breaking vote, and they would pass this. Now, uh, we don't know if that's going to happen. There were a number of folks who were unhappy with the the health care or the Obamacare light, as they were calling it, because it didn't do enough. It didn't just repeal it. Remember, Ted Cruz on the trail talked about pulling this out like, you know, I forget what the term of its root stock everything, you know, yanking it out, killing it to death, et cetera, They talked et cetera. about, like, yeah. ripping it out by the roots. It was awful. Like it was yeah, a tree. terrible, terrible thing. And now, instead, they're going to try to replicate what the ACA has been doing, except call it something else and not have the individual mandate and a couple of other tweaks, but basically try to have it, health insurance available for anyone who wants it. Whether, that, whether this bill would actually achieve that or not, well, uh, probably not, but you know, that's a big, big change from where they started out, which was repeal the whole thing. So right away, we can see the, the total difference in the argument from nine years ago when – eight years ago when, when they were talking about um, 
this is an infringement upon individual rights and you know the undeserving poor are getting this thing and now it's well because Obamacare did this badly. That's why we want to have this other thing that we're going to so do. So that's, that's why Rand Paul – might vote against it. Cause, Absolutely. Because it right. is too Obamacare-ish still. Exactly. Exactly. And and a lot of the folks who might have been nose on something like this, had it come up under Obama, uh, are could well be yeses because the Republicans have this overarching idea of we got to do something. And elections, you know, electioneering starts in just a few months for 2018. And so they're they're coming up on a deadline here. So yeah, I mean, they've been saying that they're going to do this for so, so long. They finally have their chance to do it. They don't have Obama blocking them. So if they if they don't at least try and if they don't succeed, it looks bad for them. So do you think there's some chance they're just trying to make an effort and that they themselves hope it won't happen? I, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, you've got two problems if you're Republican. One is the general election, where if you're a state, if you come from a state that has expanded Medicaid and 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 uh, the ACA is actually maybe even popular at this point, or certainly less unpopular than it used to be, you've got a big problem in the general election. But all Republicans have a problem in the primary election, right? Because their base hates anything with the name Obama anywhere near it. That's the fundamental problem with this bill. Remember, Obamacare, the ACA, was invented by the Heritage Foundation when they were trying to come up with an alternative to Hillary Care in the 90s. The basic idea of having private insurance companies provide health care to everybody except have the government help those who can't afford it, that's a conservative idea. This was the compromise. That's why they're having such difficulty. That's why the Senate, coming up with their own brand-new health care bill, came up with basically the House health care bill, except with a few small tweaks. So President Trump, in meetings with Senate Republicans and also with insurance executives, has reportedly said that the House health care bill was just too mean. Yeah, he must After have read that. After he had that big party exactly. when he they a, passed it. He basically it. had a bill signing at the White House when the House passed it, which was – more than a little bit silly, but come on, what what the president says about anything we ought to take with many grains of salt because he probably didn't know what was in the House bill when he had that big party in the Rose Garden. He probably doesn't know what's in the Senate bill. I'm guarantee you he doesn't know what's in the Senate bill or how it's differed. So his language is – you know, it's kind of pointless to try to like, figure that I out. I mean it also just shows what a fair-weather friend he is. I mean if something – if he's – Okay, so he was happy about it. He's going to praise them, and then he just kind of throws them under the bus as soon as it seems like the right thing to do. So, so Total if I was a Republican, I wouldn't guy. be feeling like, "Look, this guy's on my team is entirely." Pe- is President Trump becoming less influential, or has he been this uh, loosey goosey the whole time? Uninfluential to whom? To the, to Congress? Like, yeah. Do you think that the Senate Republicans cared that he said make it less mean? No. Yeah. No. I mean, I I think they know their staffs are generally better than the folks in the House. They, you know, a lot of folks who who start out in the House, uh, even staff members, end up going to the Senate. You have more pull. There's fewer votes, et cetera, et cetera. They knew. They knew that the president doesn't know what's in these bills. He doesn't care. He just wants a win. He just wants something he can say. I won. I signed something. I can move on to this other thing that I'm actually more interested in. Now, a lot of people actually did give Trump himself credit for getting the House bill passed because he made personal phone calls to guys and flipped their votes. Yeah. And they were just, they were just like, yeah, 
president called me. Yeah. I vote yes. Yeah. That, sure. That can't that won't work as easily in the Senate. That strategy for President Trump because senators are are like you and, said. And, and 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 I don't know that it was the determinative factor in the House either. Again, I think it has more to do with getting primary by another Republican than it does on a president who really doesn't know what's in the bill and as Elise said, will happily throw you under the bus the first moment it becomes convenient. I don't think uh, that had as much to do with it as the other factors, that these guys want to win re-election. And the number one threat first is who's going to come at me from the right. So the Senate is acting like a cooling saucer, (laughs) according to that famous anecdote that makes no sense, where some founding father is is asked why he pours his tea into his saucer. Well, I'm a little surprised (laughs) it was tea to start with and not coffee, but sure, yeah. Why would you pour anything into the saucer (laughs) instead of leave it in the cup and just wait? Anyway, I seem to remember that after Obamacare passed, Republicans complained a lot about the process. They said that there had, you know, there had been unsavory deals with insurance companies and Democrats were ramming it down America's throat. How has the process compared this time? (laughs) It's been, so, so much uh, less out in the open. I mean, for Obamacare, they had so many hearings. Uh, you know, the, whether the substance of the hearings was that good is debatable for some of them. But uh, they had it out there, the language. People could see it. Now uh, it's, you know, you get to Thursday before a potential vote next week. They put out the text of the bill, and that gives constituents, what, maybe only a few days to make calls to their senators and say that they don't like the bill, gives advocacy groups less time to come out against it. So doing it in in secret like that and having the actual senators not even, you know, most of them see it until so late in the game is just totally abnormal. It seems like Republicans took their own – caricatured a description of how Democrats passed Obamacare and made it a model for how they would pass their Obamacare repeal bill. How is it possible that this is effective politically? Do people just not remember that Obamacare was like a 14-month multi-committee open hearing process? How, how can they get away with doing something that is so obviously exactly what they said was bad about what Democrats had done during the Obama years. Yeah, because that's because people outside of the nine square blocks in this city and perhaps maybe even this in this room that we're in right now actually care about the process of how these things get done. You know, be- but does that mean it wasn't an effective criticism when Republicans were launching? Because they, they used that criticism to take the House in 2010. I think it was. Did really, did people think that because the process was bad, that's why we're going to vote against uh, the Democrat who voted for this? I mean, I'm, they I'm no, used it. They said that, quoted Nancy Pelosi saying, you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. What? So, so yeah. many times. They, I mean, they, they really thought it would help. A key ingredient in the atmosphere that fateful summer of the angry Tea Party right. town halls that preceded the shellacking, yeah. as President Trump called it, that cost him his House majority. Sure. Let me just posit this. What if Mitt Romney had come up with this bill in 2009? What if Mitt Romney had won the nomination and become president and this was a Republican-passed bill in 2009? Would we have seen these same protests? No. I think that Tea Party people were angry about President Obama. Mm-hmm. They didn't like him. This was a thing that he passed. They were going to hate the bill because Obama had been instrumental in getting it passed. So big, big picture here. In 1986, 
Ronald Reagan signed a bill saying that anybody who shows up at the emergency room and needs treatment gets treatment. So we decided as a country back, what, 30 years ago that everyone is going to get health care who needs it. And then the question after that has been how do we do it efficiently because the emergency room is the most expensive place to get it. That's why we had – you know, a, a, an idea of that we needed to pass some sort of health care bill to begin with. So, sure, we can backtrack a little here, back and then. Are we going to go back on the fundamental idea of people shouldn't get health care? I don't think even Republicans dare say that. That would Maybe. take a lot of guts. Maybe so, so. In, in answer to my question, does it matter? What you're saying is no. All that mattered is winning. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, I think for votes – even the Republicans who've been griping about the process now, I don't think that that's going to be making them vote against it. Are you Even just if have to look complaining at, about it, you know, up to this week. Like look at them holding open a, a Supreme Court seat for a year <laughs> and then putting a guy on it immediately. Like that that's a template for them not caring and it probably not mattering politically in the short term so they'll they'll go ahead and, yeah. or long term yeah so nobody knows if they can if they pass this if they can pass this next week but it's clearly an open question if they passed this exact bill under president obama do we think we the tea party protest wouldn't have happened they would have i mean this is all kind of silly i mean they're well, not going to take I'm away to... the ultimate insurance that people are going to get or not get they're just going to make it more difficult and the insurance will be worse and in the end, they'll probably go back to what we have now. I mean, uh, I just want our listeners to realize that this bill could actually pass oh, the Senate absolutely. and become absolutely. law. Yes, it could. They could, and, and it could go right over to the House. The House could pick it up and pass it. That's the very The House possible. could pick it up and pass it, or yep. they could get together in a conference committee and merge their two bills, one and totally cruel and right. one marginally less cruel. Yeah, which is why I think there is a possibility the House could just you know rip Band-Aid off, pass it, be done with it, and then try to – hope people forget the whole thing by the time the elections come around. I wanted to quickly mention, since it's something I personally followed, that the House bill kicked lottery winners off Medicaid <laughs> and the Senate bill doesn't. So that's fun, right? How, how will they resolve that difference? Right, right. Well, uh, one thing, you know, Medicaid's interesting because a lot of a lot of people think that because it helps poor people these are undeserving poor people. They shouldn't have it because they're not work hard. Well, most of Medicaid goes to the elderly in nursing homes. So they ought to think about that because those make very effective ads, as we've seen. For well, the, the Senate bill has a provision uh, for the reinstitution of uh, poor farms where you can wheel your old people in a tractor <laughs> and leave them there. All right. Esvidate and Elise Foley, thank you so much for joining me. We'll be right back. And Jason Lincolns will be back also on the show for a segment. Hey, everybody. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. And I wanted to tell you about something real quick. Our producer, Zach Young, has got another podcast that's coming out real soon. Zach. Hi, Arthur. Hello. Please tell me about this other podcast. Yes, uh, I'm the producer, so that happened. I sit here in the room with you guys every week in a sort of creepy but benevolent way, watching you all talk to each other. It's fine. But right now I'm here to talk about Candidate Confessional, which is a podcast that was started last year by our senior politics editor, Sam Stein, and Pulitzer finalist investigative reporter, Jason Cherkis. This is a 
an award-winning podcast award, itself. Award-eligible. Award award-eligible. Award, <laughs> award, yeah, award-nominated podcast. An we award nominated for a Webby. winning. Uh, we, are, we were nominated for a politics podcast Webby. Uh, we didn't win, but this year we will. Basically, it's a podcast about loss, political loss. Losers. Politicians who have lost uh, campaigns, lost legislative pushes, lost their dignity in one way or another. Uh, Love This it. season, yeah. Some of you may have heard the last season we had on – people like Anthony Weiner and Newt Gingrich. It was great. This season, guests will include Bernie Sanders' online fundraising team, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, uh, Riel Hunter, who had an affair with John Edwards prior to the 2008 campaign. Oh, uh, fabulous. And we got a little sample for you, trailer. All right, let's give it a listen. For months, we've been talking to the people behind some of the biggest political campaigns of 2016. You know, here's the thing about running against Trump is he was just going to be unconventional. Get him out of here! Get him out of here! This campaign is about creating a political revolution. We told him that he had the potential to raise a tremendous amount of money online. Wait a second, how much did you end up raising? $218 million. You are the heart and soul of this revolution! And the people behind the biggest political ads of 2016. Uh, I just sort of said, I'm sure I can put a rifle together a lot faster than the other guy. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. In this season, we go back to look at some of the biggest stories from campaigns past. The scandals. What was the first thought that went through your head when those agents descended upon you? My life is over. What the hell just happened? The National Enquirer was knocking at the door. I was terrified of being exposed because I was pregnant. And the policy battles. Almost every aspect of the news media was beating the drums for war. I found a passion and a reason to jump out of bed every morning on this issue that I hadn't had. Candidate Confessional Season 2. Coming soon from HuffPost. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm with Paul Blumenthal. Hello. Huff Post reporter. And I'm also Still joined here. by senior White House communications advisor Jason Lincolns. Congrats on the new job. Thank you. Yeah. 
Man, you must have been desperate. Um, yeah, it's yeah, a little bit. What the good news is, I'm I'm going to just do the White House communications job for a week and then quit and write a book about it. Oh, that that will be lucrative. That time Donald Trump threw a plate at my head. At least we know he still <laughs> hires the best people. Yep. Yeah, I know. I know. So I wanted you to be here to talk about Democrats in disarray. Oh, that's a that's a theme we're pretty much used to around here. Democrats have had four opportunities to take Republican House seats this year, including two this week in South Carolina and Georgia, and polling showed that they had pretty promising opportunity compared to historical trends and this all could signal a wave in the upcoming midterm election next year. But Democrats lost all four of these races. Yeah. And and people are saying wah wah, are are they correct to wah wah? I mean, one of the fun things about these races is that it's it's going to give new life to all the people on Twitter who want to relitigate the Democratic presidential primary from 2016. Like it's going to give them four more months of bitching at it. But I mean. The popular thing to say about this is to say, well, uh, what Democrats are doing in the wake of Donald Trump is they might be shifting votes and maybe changing the the definition of what the median district is. Uh, a lot of these places haven't gone that heavy for Democrats in a long time. It's important to remember that special elections have low turnout. I think that you can get a lot of energy out of voters who see a chance to pick up an upset. I think that Right now, the Republican base in these places and Georgia, the Georgia sixth is, you know, basically, you know, in many ways, a a suburban gated community of Georgia Republicans. I think that right now, if, if Republicans in these places start to sniff that they might get defeated, the money comes in, the voters get activated and they win races. So this week, Archie Parnell lost to Ralph Norman in North Carolina and John Ossoff lost to Karen Handel in Georgia. Paul Blumenthal, please give me a more upsetting take than the one Jason just a, gave a me. A more upsetting take. Yeah, I want to like rip my shirt off and, I, and scream. Well, I mean, from as Jason said, from from what I've been reading on Twitter, a lot of people are saying, you know, Democrats are idiots and morons yes. and yes. pathetic losers who can't stop nominating people who don't know what they're doing. That's the stuff. And <laughs> a, lot, a lot of this has been directed at, 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 at John Ossoff in, in Georgia. Yeah. You know, Go, oh, he didn't live in his district. He, he didn't live in his district. He was some 30-year-old congressional staffer who kind of looked like he was still wearing his bar mitzvah suit. Ooh. He ran a lot of uh, ads that, you know, where, there was an ad where he was, ju- he didn't say anything. He was just tweeting and it showed the tweets on the air and he was tweeting about, you know, how he supported investing more in federal data centers. Oh, was which, that really his ad? I thought that was an actor doing a parody of a John Ossoff ad. No, it was really his ad. Uh, so, I mean, and I think you can definitely level these criticisms. And I think a lot of things can be true from what we can read from these special elections, which is the Democrats are somewhat overperforming what where they have before, that they might be in a good position for the 2018 yeah. midterms, that they might also be terrible at politics and be taken advantage of by a lot of yeah. hu- huckstering consultants connected to the DCCC, uh, just like the Republicans have been for the past four to eight or 40 years. Yeah, there's, there's things you could criticize about message in all of this. Um, and I think that I think that it's I think that Democrats are looking at perhaps an unexpected opportunity in that 
They've got a lot of sort of enthusiasm out there. They've got a lot of new people who want to run for office. There's a really good chance that there's not going to be one of those situations where Democrats just don't field somebody in a race where they may as well field somebody. It's always good to just compete. But when I think about the Ossoff election, I think about why Democrats were so hard up to win that particular place. Because Parnell in South Carolina came a lot closer and nearly pipped that that state legislative seat. But when I see what attracted Democrats to the Georgia six, mainly I see dollar signs. Mainly I see guys at the, uh, at the congressional committee, the people who, who are trying to get people elected. Think about all those rich suburban voters who maybe can be prized away from Donald Trump because Donald Trump's vulgar and a buffoon. And it, it was a prize to sort of like reinforce the donor, Democratic donor base, get a little bit of money, uh, attract the, – the white whale for Democrats right now is flipping suburban Republicans. And that's why there was such investment in Ossoff. Ossoff because this is how they had their majority starting yes. in 2006. They had blue dog Democrats who were yes. competitive in rich Republican districts. Yeah, and I know the theories behind that. But the economy has changed since then. Um, Ossoff – Surprisingly, despite the fact he's kind of a young guy, he he ran a very professional class consultant campaign, and there was nothing about well, what what are people my age? I'm like 30 years old. What are people five years younger from me dealing with right now? They're probably dealing with student debt. They're probably dealing with a with a weak job market where you, you don't get a good start in life and you don't finish as 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 well as you did later in life. And there are ideas he should have put on the table to address those things. And going forward, Democrats have perhaps an opportunity to to get back in the game here. And we'll just point out that in off-year elections, usually the tide runs against the party in the White House. So they should have been expecting something of an opportunity. But they can't just run in the hopes of prizing more suburban Republicans away from Donald Trump. They need to have ideas that activate new young voters to their ranks. I will predict right now that for all those suburb, let's point out Ossoff underperformed Hillary Clinton in that election. What? Yes, maybe that's not a good comparison, but I predict that Republican suburban Republicans who have like a little bit of that sort of professional class bearing in life and like to think of themselves as a little bit educated and elevated, they may have stayed at home or not voted for Trump in the election, but I would be willing to bet that. Four years from now, assuming Trump hasn't blown up the world or admired himself in an implacable scandal that can't be denied by anybody, I think that the Republican support in those districts will harden in Trump's favor. And I think that going after those voters is a foolish thing for Democrats to do. Well, yeah, that's what uh, I mean. That's what Hillary Clinton tried to do was go after these kind of profession, increase the professional class level, cut off any kind of attempt to get rural or working class white voters that voted for Obama in 2008 yeah. and 2012. And I, I mean, I think, it, you know, it turns out, as we've seen, Republicans are still Republicans and vote for Republicans, yeah. especially when reminded as such. And you look at Georgia 6. I mean, th- there were other elections where, where candidates like Rob Quist ran on single payer and, and other in actual ideas. And, yeah, I saw on Twitter, which is uh, basically the assignment desk for all journalists, mm. yeah. that Republicans actually blew it in all the special elections that occurred prior to their sweep of the House in the 2010 midterm. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. If you're... So if, can Democrats just wait for the wave? You know, politics is not about soothsaying. It's not about saying the historical record and assuming it's going to repeat itself. You know, it's not like... It's not. It's like, not. Yes, Tom Perez cannot rattle some bones over a fire in a chalk circle and expect to repeat the prior results. They actually have to go out and construct a message that speaks to the voters who are most active and most likely to be one to their side. And a side note, I um while I was at home this week, I was watching a a back a back episode of the Seth Meyers show, and Tom Perez was the, was the guest. He is really bad at this. <laughs> he is not good at being DNC this is the chair. chairman of the DNC. He needs to get his act together and not hem and haw his way through a simple "What are the Democrats about?" message. It's because it's it's bad. I they mean, need to decide what they're about. I mean, also, I mean, to go back to the point that Arthur was making about 2009, 2010, it's like well, the Republicans looked pretty terrible back then. And then they won 60 some odd seats. You know, Michael Steele was the RNC chairman and nobody wanted to give them any money because they thought what he was doing was so terrible. And then they wound up winning anyways. And because of uh, because of their ragey message against the president. That was basically I mean, what they wanted put, for him. And, they, you know, there is going to be rage against the president. He's extremely unpopular. Yes, and there's rage against this president too. Uh, and and that's some of the things that have been. But that is the history. Sure, that is the bones over the fire. There still needs to be consistency, and there needs to be a reckoning with what people in the country need. And there needs to be less of a focus on trying to prize suburban Republicans away from Donald Trump. Suburban Republicans okay. don't have a problem in this economy. They don't have a problem in this economy. Affluent people in the Georgia 6th District, whatever's going on that's bad, if Donald Trump screws something up, if it's never going to land on those people. They're always going to think, oh, the country's going fine. Everything's going fine. They may think, I was wrong about Donald Trump because I don't feel like four years on, my life hasn't gotten worse. Okay, I'll vote for him. It's it's it's, okay, it's foolish a, to a, chase those votes. I have a last thing I wanted to ask. People are all pissed off at Nancy Pelosi now. Mm. She's not the one. You know, it's Tom Perez who's in like the titular head of the party, right? Well, I mean, it's it's I, it's difficult to call the DNC head the head of the party. He's he has a specific role, but is the, is it is there a plot? Is it makes sense to say time to throw Nancy Pelosi overboard because of these oh, these election outcomes? She seems she does seem more suited to negotiating things in the house. She's great at and, that. But she's also really good at being a terrible foil that Republicans put in every TV. She, ad. She's a lightning rod in all of these ads and all, all of these political campaigns and also I mean I think that there's a problem in the Democratic Party where every single person in leadership is like over 65 or over 70 and at some point we just need to get or younger leaders in both political parties really i mean you have like a 70 year old president 71 now i guess year old president isn't john conyers the, at the top of the house judiciary committee john conyers is 89, 89. I think. yeah uh, you know bernie sanders people want him to run uh for president in 2020 when he'll be what 79 but, but john ossoff was young john ossoff yeah yeah i mean and getting young people into congress sure if that's what you want, but you have to have some kind. You have to win and have a message. Yeah. But I'm I'm just saying, like maybe the Democrats need some younger blood in their leadership. I see. Than than 
you know, just being stuck with Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and the same people. I mean, you, the, you know, that they were trying to get pe- people to come up like Javier Becerra and Chris Van Hollen, and yeah. they saw the writing on the wall that there was nowhere else to move, so they left. If Nancy Pelosi wants to reevaluate the current state of affairs in the country and reshape a democratic message to specifically suit that, she should do that. I think that mm, it's tough to say. You never want to say, oh, you're too old. I'm planning on being too old at something one day too and, and not being uh, and being upset about it being my time to go. Uh, but – you know, it's it, you should think less about the fact that Nancy Pelosi is old and been at her job for a long time, and more about the fact that in places like the Georgia Six, uh, her negatives are are really really high, and she can be put on a poster and 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 attached to the candidate like John Ossoff was, and it gets people thinking it's like, oh, John Ossoff is like Nancy Pelosi. Strangely enough, from what I understand, John Ossoff did not do much of tying Karen Handel to Donald Trump. He, no, he ran. Except he did in that text message or Twitter ad. That, that was the only ad that mentioned Donald Trump. Run, and think uh, about by, run by him or the DCCC or <laughs> right. any other outside group. They need to th- that, see. This is just so emblematic. People who are running political campaigns need to understand the type of people who are going to get tweets and text messages as their primary source of information regarding your campaign, and it's not the people. It. It's so funny. Don't you just hate people looking at their phones? <laughs> Why would like you one of the least, least I do. pleasant thing. Like I, I do, but if you're it's a terrible but if way you're, to look, if you're in the middle class or working class right now, you're not waiting for a text message on your phone to be told what your political party that's supposedly looking out for you is going to do. You're working. All right, uh, White House Communications Director Jason Lincoln, thank you for stopping by. Thanks, uh, I'll have a new job next Huff week. Post Money and Politics reporter Paul Blumenthal, thank you as well. We will be right back. Hey there, listeners. Are you a So That Happened fan? Then you should drop us a line sometime at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to help us out, subscribe, tell your friends, leave us a review on iTunes. Your words of praise help us claw our way up the podcast charts. And now, back to the show. We're back. It's me, Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by Julia Craven. Hello. And Nick Wing. Hey, guys. And these are reporters at Huffington Post like me. And we had an unusual number of police officers get acquitted for shooting unarmed people. These acquittals came through this week. Julia, how many have there been? Right now, there has been two. Two in the last week? Yes, in less than a week. Okay, so maybe it wasn't an unusual number, but they were unusually <laughs> two unusually high-profile police yes. acquittals in which everybody who was familiar with the case at all was really kind of shocked, even though this is a, a long-standing pattern because of how our uh, justice sy- system is set up. So, Julia, you've covered the shootings and the acquittals. Which one uh, happened first? So the officer who um, shot and killed Philando Castile last year was acquitted on June 16th. And then on June 21st, the officer who shot and killed Seville Smith in Milwaukee was acquitted. So the Philando Castile one was incredibly shocking because this was where 
Castile's girlfriend live streamed the immediate aftermath. And just from that video, you could tell that nothing really dangerous had been going on prior to the police officer shooting. Uh, so was it a, a big surprise that the jury acquitted the officer? I'm going to say no, just because it's really hard to convict um, a cop anyway. So I'm just going to say no. Um, for me, it would be shocking if a cop was found guilty of murdering someone. Well, what we're seeing now also is a bunch of cases, I mean, with the the prominence of video. So you're, you're actually getting to see either the aftermath or the incident itself. And it's pretty clear, I think, that the public's objective view of what happened during these incidents and the actual legal system's interpretation of whether that was lawful or not uh, is very at odds with one another. And, and, you know, the system has not been good at convicting police officers of anything, but certainly of, of shootings. It hasn't even been good at putting them on trial for such things. But now you're actually seeing the incidents that are, are going on trial. And it's just blowing people's mind, I think, because people think that there is an objective wrongness to, to these incidents. And, and that just doesn't match up with, with what the legal system holds. Well, people think that because that's what it is. Like You can look yeah. at it with your own two eyes. It's not ambiguous. You don't need training to interpret the video in a way that makes it less inhumane. But when you're talking about like reckless murder charges or any any type of like murder charge, you have to like the prosecution has to prove that the police officer went in with the intention to kill someone. And that's incredibly difficult. And oftentimes they frankly can't prove that. Well, there are different levels of murder charge, right? Like there are the highest levels, which include premeditation. You know, you went and you deliberately did it. And then there are lesser flavors where, well, it's involuntary manslaughter. You were excessively reckless and should be held responsible. What were they going for in these recent cases, the prosecutors? Well, the former Milwaukee police officer who shot Seville Smith was charged with reckless murder. And the officer who shot and killed Philando Castile was charged with second degree manslaughter and endangering safety by discharging a firearm. And so those are lesser murder charges. How is it that they can't even be convicted for those when it's so clear that they shot and killed these guys who weren't uh, posing a threat to them, according to the video evidence. Well, the, these cases are – they end up being so subjective, right? Because what you have to – what you're defending as a defense attorney here for the officer is what was going on in the mind of the officer and was that reasonable or not. There, it, It's hard to think of an objective standard for reasonableness. So what you end up going on is is what the officer was thinking and how scared they were and how scared they should have been. So all – Unfortunately, all the officer has to do in in these cases is convince the jury that they were scared and they were scared rightfully and therefore they had to use lethal force. And that brings up so many other issues as to why a jury would believe that someone was actually reasonably fearful for their life or not. So it's in other words, it's difficult to convict a police officer for manslaughter because the legal system is such that they only have to meet this reasonable fear for their lives standard and they can justify basically anything that happened. Yeah, and when you couple that with the perception and 
that um, cops have a really hard job that most people hold, they're going to be like, well, you know, like he's a cop. And most people trust police officers. So. So you both have been covering this kind of high profile police incident for HuffPost for a long time. I remember a few years back, it seemed like there was momentum building for criminal justice reform. And a part of that was reform for uh, how police how police do their jobs. And, you know, we saw the proliferation of body cameras, for instance. But it seems like that itself is not necessarily enough to actually change the entire system for there to be more justice in these kinds of cases. I mean, if you go back to the Walter Scott shooting, which is probably the most disturbing police shooting you'll ever see of a guy fleeing, being shot in the back repeatedly, and a jury was unable to come to uh, a unanimous decision that that guy was guilty of, of, of something. And you have to ask why. And you have to ask whether a jury of 12 people is really capable of coming to a unanimous conclusion that a cop acted with malice in any sort of way. I mean, the, the, as Julia pointed out, the, there's such pro-police views in this, in this country, I think, that one of those 12 people is likely to side with the police officer for any number of reasons, you know, race, uh, general perceptions of law enforcement. It's very hard to convince 12 people, I think, that an officer not only acted negligently but with some sort of malice to kill someone who didn't deserve to be killed. And uh, so even just – I mean seeing it I think more and more is making people wonder and making people question whether the system is working in a way that it's supposed to. But clearly there's not, there's not a textbook case for uh, this is objectively a cop murdering someone. This is objectively a cop – killing someone unlawfully because if there were i think we would have seen it already because on a jury you only need one person to hold out and say no i don't agree that this was bad that, in order for the yeah for a total mistrial for a mistrial right uh you know that that will just get you another trial we're seeing another the second trial uh in ohio right now this former cincinnati university of cincinnati officer who shot sam dubose during a uh, traffic stop and, and we're likely to get an actual verdict on that this week but Again, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of confidence that that'll come out as a guilty verdict. So last year during the campaign, uh, Donald Trump actually commented on one police shooting in Oklahoma, and he said that uh, the officer who shot Terrence Crutcher had done the wrong thing. He actually said that he thought this cop choked and that this kind of person shouldn't be on the force. And everyone was basically shocked that Trump would say something against police. His administration so far with Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department is basically a pro-police federal government. Is that right? That Yes, definitely. And it was – I think a lot of people probably wouldn't have wanted him to sort of prejudice that case at all. And But I, I think – I mean he was speaking out from, from a, an uneducated position on this, which is you look at a case like that and you say, how the hell did – she screw up like that and it and it looks bad but when she goes before the jury and says i was terrified this guy didn't listen to my commands i thought he was on drugs you know it becomes a very subjective equation at that point so i'm not surprised that donald trump spoke out a little out of turn but um <laughs> so that was just classic trump uh 
yeah. his mind wandering off in the middle of uh, a speech on a different topic. Right. And saying what a lot of – I mean but he was saying what, what I think the general public feels in, in the aftermath of a lot of these incidents is – which is there's no way this was proper protocol. But the, the issue is that improper behavior does not necessarily equal illegal behavior. So you could get disciplined for something like shooting someone incorrectly. You could get fired for sh- something like shooting someone in, in the wrong circumstance. But that doesn't necessarily rise to illegality and murder or manslaughter. So, so it's very complicated. Do you think it's fair to say that the acquittals that we've had in the last month uh, – suggests that we're a long way off from the kind of like cultural and legal changes that you'd need to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, right. I yes. mean, if you look, if you take a broader look at the data, uh, we've apparently we've had 82 officers nationwide charged with murder and manslaughter uh, in the last 12 years, just 82. And, you know, this we're talking. Oh, wow. About, yeah. That's a low number. We're cause... talking about a thousand people probably getting killed every year. And, you know, a lot of those are what people would consider, consider pretty objectively standard on duty cases. People armed shooting at police officers getting killed. But, you know, so if we've had something like a thousand a year and it's been 12 years, 12,000 and only 82 of those have risen to the level where they're getting charged. That's not even found guilty of those. Um, just 29, 29 of those have been actually convicted and very few of those have been convicted by juries. A lot of them have pled guilty to lesser charges, um, uh, you know, other ways to sort of get off without actually being – having to confront the fact that they should be convicted of murder or a death-related charge for those. So um, – you know, we're seeing a bunch come down. We've yet to have a case uh, of a shooting last year that's ended in a guilty conviction, and a lot of people got killed last year. So, um, yes, I mean the answer the answer is we're a long ways away from reaching a point. I think where where what what the the average person in the public uh, looks at and sees something bad, and, and the the system's able to to find them guilty of that. And one thing that I want to point out about jury trials is um, that they are very flawed. And oftentimes people who belong to the community that the victim belongs to, especially when we see cases of um, unarmed black people shot and killed by cops, those community members are very less likely to sit on juries. They're weeded out through voir dire. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe someday there will be justice. Uh, Julia Craven, Maybe. Nick Wing, <laughs> thank you for joining the So That Happened podcast. We'll see you all next week. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by my colleagues Julia Craven, Nick Wing, Paul Blumenthal, S.V. Date, Elise Foley, as well as former So That Happened host Jason Lincolns. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.